The Good Neighbor Network, FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and online at WGNSRadio.com. This is the WGNS Action Line, talking with Rutherford County newsmakers about what matters most to you. Now your host, Scott Walker. Time right now, 818. You're tuned in to the WGNS Action Line today, Tuesday, July the 12th. And for today's show, we have with us Dr. Elias Eli, a neurosurgeon, part of St. Thomas Rutherford. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Thank I, you for having me. Yeah, definitely. I, and and today, beautiful day out there today. Great day for surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, so I guess kind of give listeners an idea of what you're seeing day in and day out. What's common in your practice? Um, you know, uh, the Rutherford Hospital is a very, very busy hospital. Uh, for neurosurgery, we, we do uh, a range of uh, cranial and spine surgery. Uh, in terms of cranial surgery, anywhere from uh, traumatic brain injuries, uh, in terms of subdurals, uh, basically head bleeds, subdurals, intrabranchial hemorrhages, uh, to brain tumors. So when, uh, you, when, it, when it comes to like head injuries and traumatic brain injury, are we seeing more of those today or are the diagnosis of them just a whole lot better and maybe that's why we're seeing more? Uh, we're seeing more because more people are driving and more people are engaging in physical activity, especially in the summer. So we are seeing a lot more now. Um, we are also good at diagnosing them as well, uh, but I think you know when the summer uh, time hits, everyone's more active, and people are also traveling more, and they're on the highway, especially I-24. Definitely. Again, uh, Dr. Yeah. Eli with us on the air this morning. And folks listening, if they have any questions for the doctor, they can text those in, 615-893-1450. What are some of the, I guess, more complicated cases of traumatic brain injury, and, and how often do folks not realize they needed probably to have gotten help sooner? Um, you know, uh, common traumatic brain injuries result in small bleeds in the head, and those, you know, even though it's small, they do have symptoms, and a lot of people will have headaches, uh, mood changes, and difficulty sleeping. Um, I think part of it is just uh, recognizing the signs and symptoms and, you know, if you do and you get help, most people are fine. The other challenging ones are when you have a traumatic injury that results in a large bleed in the head that's causing, you know, big shifts in the brain that requires emergency surgery. Those are a little bit more challenging to handle because they require a surgery and a long time to recover. You know, I've always heard if you wake up with a headache every day, that could be a sign of trouble. But the problem is when you live in the south especially during spring, fall, and summer, you've got allergies like crazy. So it, I'm sure it's hard to differentiate for a patient. You know, hey, is this a point where I need to go to see my doctor or is it not? Yeah, and, you know, I tell people, you know, you rule out the common things being common, meaning that if you, you know, you haven't had your coffee and you have a headache, you know, drink some coffee, stay hydrated, and try the allergy medication. And if none of that helps and you're still having the headaches, that's the time to go see your primary care doc. And what are some of the signs and symptoms of, uh, you know, head-related trauma? And, I'm, you know, obviously these signs and symptoms need to be monitored, looked out for 
after you have something go wrong as far as, you know, you get hit in the head, you fall down, whatever the case may be, I guess. Yeah, the biggest problem people have, uh, you know, in dealing with uh, traumatic injuries are the headaches. The headaches are really a big issue. Um, some people will have uh, vomiting afterwards and nausea, uh, but headaches are the biggest thing and sleep problems. Sleep problems, man. Uh, so yeah, with sleep issues, you know, a lot of folks have those on a day-in, day-out basis. It, it, it seems, in fact, it seems more prevalent in today's world than any other time. And, and I'm sure people in the past said the same thing, but in today's society, everybody is just full speed ahead. So sleep yeah. kind of comes with problems. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's about, uh, uh, you know, recognizing that there's a change in your sleep pattern. If you were having difficulty sleeping in the beginning, then, you know, it's the same, but if you suddenly, you know, hit your head or you were in a car accident or you were you know, uh, in uh, you know, participating in physical, act, you know, sports, and then you have sleep problems. That's a you know, that's a new change, and that's when you have to kind of think about you know, looking into that more. What are some of the different cases that have come to you over the years that you have found e- either more interesting as a doctor, or that you have thought to yourself, you know, I, I've never seen something like this occur before. Uh, but what are some of the more interesting cases you've gone over? Um, sometimes um, some of the challenging ones are when someone has a big bleed on one side of the head and also has another bleed on the other side of the head. And thus, you know, sometimes we require doing surgeries on both sides of someone's head. The other interesting ones are when someone comes in with a nail to the head. You know, they misfired the nail and it's right in their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen that on TV shows and stuff, but <laughs> you've real. actually seen it in person. I've seen it once, and I've seen a pipe, a small pipe uh, that kind of uh, sprung out of the, the ground and, and struck someone's head as well. Wow. But that was a while back, yeah. Man, it just sounds painful, you know, you're describing it. It sounds pretty rough. Yeah. You know, interesting fact is that underneath the skull and in the, the brain doesn't have any pain receptors. So people that experience the pain are just from the covering of the brain and the skin and the, and the bone. Wow, so most of the pain is on the outside, like a, like a cut. Exactly, yeah. That's wild. I never knew that. And then when it comes time to, you know, actually have any surgery dealing with the brain or, or anything, you know, in your head, really, um, how difficult is that procedure and what has to be done, you know, to have some type of brain-related surgery? Um, you know, with with the brain, I think it's like real estate. It's all, it's all about location, location, location. And, you know, people think it's just one part, but we have so many different approaches, and it all depends on where the injury is or where the tumor is in terms of uh, performing these surgeries. You know, you, you spend seven years um, in training, uh, doing these surgeries day in and day out and getting trained to do them very well. In terms of for the patient, I think the uh, the thing that we tell them is, you know, we want to make sure that they're medically clear and that they can tolerate the anesthesia and just kind of get ready get ready for the uh, post-operative course. Again, we're talking with Dr. Eli this morning. He is in neurosurgery and also in spine surgery and part of St. Thomas Rutherford and Decision Medical Group. Now, you are, I believe, a native of Nashville, so you've grown up in this area. Uh, It seems like we have got some world-renowned 
surgeon, surgeons in Tennessee. And, and I don't know if we have more than other states because of places like Vanderbilt and UT or what, but it seems like we have some very talented surgeons in our area. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up in East Nashville, and I uh, went to uh, high school and middle school there. Went to Vanderbilt for undergrad and medical school. And uh, and you're right, we do have a lot of neurosurgeons. Um, you know, Vanderbilt has a lot of uh, talented neurosurgeons. Uh, there's also St. Thomas uh, that has uh, neurosurgeons at West and Midtown. There's also Centennial, and then there's us at uh, St. Thomas Rutherford as well. And there's uh, other neurosurgeons in Williamson County as well. That being said, how often do doctors, you know, work together in order to, like, let's say a patient goes to one doctor and then they go to a second doctor at a, at a second location just to get that, that second opinion on whatever is going on? How often do doctors communicate with one another to say, you know, well, you're right, it could be this or possibly and then name any list of things going on. It's more frequent than you, uh, you know, you anticipate. Um, you know, most people here in Tennessee, I think they go to the doctor, and if one doctor says one thing, they're usually, um, you know, they usually um, don't seek a second opinion. Um, I encourage patients if we ever, at some point, uh, you know, hit a raw, you know, uh, difficult. Uh, uh, you know, diagnosis, I, I tell them, hey, you know, I have a partner in this location and that's his expertise. Go ahead and go see him. And it, so. I would imagine, you know, some head injuries can be kind of tough to diagnose, especially when you were saying if it's a very small bleed. Uh, yeah. I'm sure that's tough to spot in the beginning. It is. It is. And, uh, and it's all about the symptoms that people have. And and that list of symptoms, you know, like you were saying earlier, everything from not being able to sleep, constant headaches, yeah. uh, throwing up a lot. I mean, there's there's just a lot of symptoms, I guess, that can go along with head injuries. Yeah, you know, the the good thing is if it is um, if it is traumatic brain injury related, um, if we rule out the bad things uh, uh, with scans of the brain, then we know that people usually recover over time. And the the goal is to rule out uh, any bad things. You know, the other thing is people can sometimes come in thinking that they have uh, a head injury because they've fallen, hit their head, or and, uh, and then they notice that they've had headaches for a while, and you scan their head, and they have something totally unrelated, or that they um, they, they have a, a you know a large collection of blood in their brain that needs to be drained. In the field of head injuries, it seems like high schools and colleges are doing more and more to teach coaches and players about concussions and the danger of concussions. Are you seeing an increased number of maybe high school to college students coming in for problems dealing with concussions or that started out as a concussion? Um, y yes, um, not, not a huge increase, but we are seeing more. And, you know, the, the goal of recognizing this is, you know, if you do have a concussion, um, you worry about a second, uh, there's a second hit hypothesis that if you get one concussion and you get a second high, uh, concussion, the second one can cause uh, more damage. So the so it's about, second it's can about, cause more. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We got an interesting text here from a listener. It says, in 2006, I had a car accident and a skull fracture. And since that date of 06, I have had an intermittent uh, spinal fluid leak. And what should I do? Because doctors have not done really anything about it yet. So an intermittent spinal fluid leak, I, I've, is that common? 
Um, that's uh, I would say that that's rare, and uh, it doesn't. Uh, you know, I think it would require more of a workup, um, especially if you had a skull fracture. Um, people can have skull fractures, but the spinal fluid leak, if it is coming from the head, you'd have to repair it. But some people can have uh, um, a tear in the covering of the brain, and they can have leakage elsewhere. Uh, what I would say to that caller is, you know, I think um, if they've had difficulty with the diagnosis, it wouldn't be a bad idea seeing a neurosurgeon and getting, you know, better evaluation and seeing if something else could be done. Do some folks have problems like that, but yet no real symptoms other than, I guess, an intermittent spinal fluid leak? And, and, and how would you know the difference of spinal fluid versus, you know, you just needed to blow your nose? Because it's got to be similar, as gross as yeah. that may sound. Yeah, spinal fluid leak um, is a, it's usually a clear fluid leaking out of the nose um, or sometimes the ear. And if that happens, you can send the fluid for testing, and there's a specific test that we can check for to see. Um, the other more ways to diagnose it is you can get um, a very specific MRI or a CT scan to look for any, you know, um, a breakdown in the bone. And, you know, these leaks are common in two areas, either in the nose or the ear. Um, and if it is frequent enough, you know, you'd want to address it. So the, it depends on the location, uh, to be honest, and it depends on collecting some of that fluid and, and confirming that's really a, you know, fluid, uh, like a cerebrospinal fluid leak, rather than blowing your nose and just having, you know, a runny nose. And there are so many tests that can be done these days compared to even 10 years ago that I'm sure help provide even more tools for doctors and surgeons out there. But what are some of the different tests that can be done when it comes to looking for a brain injury? Um, neuropsych testing is one of them. Um, uh, nowadays, our CT scans and MRIs are even uh, uh, better at uh, detecting these injuries, specifically MRIs. Um, but in combination of both imaging and a neuropsych test or even a neuro neurological examination can give us the answers. Here's another text that says, my son's behavior was off two years ago and we kept insisting on having an MRI or a CT scan done of his brain. Eventually the doctors allowed it and he ended up having a brain tumor. It was non-cancerous but removed. How long after the surgery should we expect to see some problems with his functioning as far as reasoning skills and understanding skills? Uh, depends on the age and depends on how they're doing, but it can take up to a year or two for people to see any changes. Wow, a year or two just to recover from that brain injury. Yeah. So when a tumor is growing inside of a brain, let's say of a, a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old, you know, the brain's still developing. So with that tumor growing inside and with it pushing up against the brain, and I'm sure harder and harder as it grows, what types of changes in personality would somebody see? Um, you know, so when you're, um, when you're an infant, um, sometimes the sutures or the bones in the head haven't fully healed. So when people have tumors like that, the, the head just expands, so you see a kid with a big head. But when you're 16 or 17 and you have a tumor growing in your brain, it all depends on location. If it is growing in the frontal lobe, then people can have memory problems, they can have executive uh, function issues, they can have um, uh, uh, behavioral changes. Uh, if the tumor is growing in the back of the head, in the uh, sorry, the top back part, 
that's the part of the brain that controls their ability to move their hands on the opposite side. If it's at the way back uh, part of the head, that's your vision, your occipital cortex, and people can have visual changes. And if it's at the bottom or the base of the skull, people can have weakness in both hands and legs and have other issues. It all depends on the location uh, of the tumor. Um, but the frontal lobe is what uh, um, determines memory, behavioral, and executive functions. So that frontal lobe, if the tumor is pushing up against that, th- then you can expect to see even, I guess, a wider variety of changes. Exactly. Man, it, that, that's got to be rough, especially on a developing teen, because for a parent, well, we know teens are going through all types of changes anyway. So it, it's going to be, in the beginning, I bet hard to differentiate, well, is this normal? Is this just you know him or her developing, or is something really wrong here? Yeah, you know, and that's the the hard part with teenagers. <laughs> you know, it could be the brain tumor, most likely not. Man. Yeah, and but you have to recognize that brain tumors are so rare that, you know, for someone to have it, it's a very rare finding. So I I would say that if you have a teenager and and they're having behavioral problems, I wouldn't rush to getting a scan of their head thinking it's a, you know, yeah, a don't, brain tumor. Don't scare your child, I guess, for one. Yeah, yeah. But with with the collar and the headaches and you know frequent things not getting better, then usually seeing their primary care doc can lead to a workup getting imaging of the brain. You know, I I bet in today's time, so many people self-diagnose themselves before they even get to the office, thanks to Google, which is not really a good thing at times. Yeah, uh, it's it's different when someone uses Google, but you know now more and more patients are recognizing that. So they'll come to the clinic, for instance, and they'll say, "Hey, doc, just for the record, I I googled uh, Google. Uh, you know, I've looked this up on Google MD, so don't judge me." <laughs> I bet. Uh, here's another text. It says, "In the early days of COVID-19, we heard about something that they called brain fog. Is that a problem to actually watch over time? And also." Does brain fog form in early cases of coronavirus? Does it differ from the latest milder variant of COVID? Um, to be honest, I we don't know a lot about the brain fog associated with COVID. And, you know, uh, even though the viruses are all the same with small uh, mutations that cause different effects, I would say, yes, I would still be careful about, you know, brain fog related to COVID. It's, it's very rare. A lot of people have had COVID. Not a lot of people have the brain fog. Some of them do. And, you know, with this disease just being two years, um, you know, uh, it's hard to uh, know more about it. So people are still studying it right now. But, uh, you know, you do see people who have brain fog related to COVID. Do you think we're going to see a, a lot of new things, you know, after, let's say, in two to five years, when there's more studies that hopefully are released and available on the results of COVID, what happened after COVID. Do you think we're going to see more information about problems that COVID caused as far as with the brain? Absolutely. I think so. I think it's just a matter of time. So in the near future, I'm sure studies are being done now, so those will be released. I'm sure Vanderbilt's doing studies on stuff like that, too, for students. Yeah. Interesting times. Again, with us this morning from St. Thomas Rutherford, Dr. Eli, neurosurgery and spine surgery. Those are two of the, uh, two of the areas that you cover. Uh, and for those listening, uh, spine surgery and neurosurgery, that, that actually covers a lot more ailments, I think, than people realize. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, um, 
it's easy to differentiate uh, it into two pieces and say it's brain and spine, but there is a lot of uh, subspecialties within those two groups. So, you know, even with the spine, you can have, you know, uh, spinal cord injuries, you can have fractures in your spine, you could break your back. You could also have tumors in your spine as well. Um, and uh, a lot of people, and you can also have scoliosis and you can have pediatric uh, injuries to the spine. Uh, as well. Even with the brain, there are so many subspecialties. People do surgery on the brain for head injuries. They do surgery on the brain for tumors. Um, there's also aneurysms and, uh, uh, and vascular uh, malformations that happen in the brain that requires an endovascular uh, neurosurgeon. Let, let, and there's also, yeah. I was going to say, let's talk more about that when we come back from the break because aneurysms, that's one of those that you know, everybody hears about every single year, and uh, they're dangerous, obviously, and they happen quick. But let's talk a little bit more about that when we come back from this break. We're going to take a look at the forecast, and we'll come right back to you. So just a minute. Time right now, 8.39. And on air with us this morning, Dr. Eli from Decision St. Thomas Rutherford. And he practices in the specialty area of neurosurgery and spinal cord so we'll talk more with him in just a minute time again right now 8 39 the action line on fm 101.9 and am 1450 murfreesboro fm 100.5 smyrna and streaming at wgnsradio.com by growing up in the restaurant business and being always around it, it was just something that was just second nature to me. I didn't realize the amount of work that was involved in it. I, I didn't understand and appreciate all that my parents sacrificed in order to provide for us. And now I'm very thankful and, I, and I'm very appreciative of the foundation that they laid for me so we could teach others to create what they have done to make it more of a legacy than just a passing of the torch. This is Peter Demas inviting you to enjoy a meal with our family at Demas's Restaurant. Hi, this is Dan Mitchell at Music World and Drummer's Den, Murfreesboro, Tennessee. We have an excellent sound room with good acoustics. If you want to try out any guitar in the store, if you've got a perfect place to listen to it, compare them side by side, see how the neck feels to your hand, which is important to a guitar player. We have keyboards to play, a room in the back for drums to give a run-through with cymbals, snares, whole sets. Come in Music World and Drummer's Den and try out before you buy it. Music World and Drummer's Den. Listen live to WGNS Radio on our website, and Alexa, or Google devices. Search WGNS Radio for on-demand podcasts in iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Plus, we have direct links to podcasts at WGNSRadio.com. We'll see a few scattered showers and thunderstorms possible late this afternoon. A blend of clouds and sunshine develops high in the mid-90s. Tonight, chance for rain and storms low of 71. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Wojcicki on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 73. The Action Line on FM 101.9 and AM 1450 Murfreesboro, FM 100.5 Smyrna, and streaming at WGNSRadio.com. News time right now, 841. Our guest on air this morning, Dr. Elias Eli, and he is a surgeon right here, part of St. Thomas Rutherford Hospital on Medical Center Parkway, and uh, you practice at several other locations too, I believe. 
Um, for now, I'm at uh, Rutherford, and I have a clinic at McMinnville as well. All right. And again, we're talking about issues dealing with the brain and spinal cord. And before that last break, you brought up aneurysms, and that's one of those things we always hear about. And we hear about how quickly they occur, how dangerous they can be. So I guess tell us more about aneurysms. Uh, brain aneurysms are basically dilation in the blood vessels in the brain. And uh, people can have them for uh, many sort of reasons, and there's a lot of blood vessels in the brain, and it can occur in any one of those blood vessels. The major areas are usually the internal carotid artery um, or the middle cerebral artery or the anterior communicating or anterior cerebral arteries. Um, The dilation is because of a weakness within the wall of the uh, artery, and uh, when the wall gets weak and there's a lot of blood flow, sometimes the wall can rupture, and then there's a lot of bleeding that happens in the brain. So are there um, the, signs yeah. for looking out for this? Um, so the, uh, when you have an aneurysm rupture, I tell people more than half of the patients die at that point. Um, but uh, people, off the people that make it to the hospital, another uh, half of those don't survive and then there's a small percentage of people that survive with intervention. Now, the, the weakness in the wall happens over time, so the biggest side effects or sort of biggest symptoms that people have, uh, one are, the, like we talked about uh, before, headaches. Um, the biggest uh, way to know if someone has an aneurysm is to look, at, uh, to look for risk factors, uh, the most common being uh, smoking. Uh, the second one is having high blood pressure. And now, if you do have a family history of brain aneurysms, if you say that your mother or your grandmother both died from an aneurysm, it may be worth it to check uh, with, a, with a, a physician to get imaging of your brain to look for aneurysms. Um, there are other uh, disorders that people can have. Uh, if they have something called polycystic kidney disease or have something called Ehlers-Danlos syndrome or fibromuscular dysplasia, they can predisposition people um, to aneurysms. So there is a lot that can be done not only to, I, I guess, prevent or better safeguard yourself from getting them, uh, living a healthy lifestyle for one, but there are things that can be done to treat that aneurysm uh, you know, before it becomes a major problem. Exactly, and that's the interesting part is that uh, about 10 to 20 years ago, the treatment for these aneurysms was to do a craniotomy or take a piece of the bone out, go right into the brain, find the, art, uh, find the aneurysm and put a clip on it uh, to close off that weak wall. Nowadays, people have treatments through an endovascular procedure where they put a catheter into the groin. You know how they have heart casts where they put stents in the heart? Uh, Instead of doing that, we can now put stents in the brain, and that stent reinforces that wall. It's wild where we've come as far as surgery and and medical practices these days. Yeah, early in my training, someone has the, the surgery, they stay in the hospital several days. Now they get the procedure, they don't need any pain medication, and they get discharged home the next day with blood thinners. And again, you mentioned craniotomies. Uh, you know, that, that is something that it sounds quite scary, but that is a pretty intense surgery no matter what you're going in there for, right? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, you know, you have to uh, drill the bone off and you have to cut it out. Um, 
uh, you know, but back in the day, it used to be considered, uh, well, 50 years ago, it used to be considered a very uh, morbid or challenging condition, uh, you know, uh, treatment. But nowadays, with the newer technologies and with the uh, drills that we have now, it's very easy to do, and people, and uh, we can get people through surgery uh, very easily and get them home within a couple of days. And then that recovery process afterwards, that that's got to be rough i I mean it's got to take time and and do folks need any type of rehabilitation after a surgery like that uh depends on the location and depends on the uh on the reasons that they're getting the surgery but I, i i have found patients to be surprised after having craniotomies and they say hey doc you know my headaches were bad the first day and now i feel a lot better and they're up and walking the next day so Man. some people go home literally within a couple of days with minimal pain. The biggest pain generators that they have is just the skin and the you know just some of the bone pain that they get. We have another question here about scar tissue buildup. The question asks, doesn't scar tissue grow faster on the brain than anywhere else in the body? And if so, what does that look like after a surgery is done on the brain? Um. So I don't think scar tissue grows uh, much faster on the brain than anywhere else, and uh, the um, the scar itself, if anything, would be on the skin and would be on the covering of the brain. But once you get into the brain, um, it just looks uh, like uh, how do I describe this? Um, just a, a, um, a fluffy type of tissue on the brain. Wow, okay. So I I don't think we have more scar in the brain than the rest of the body. I would actually say less scar. Another question here, memory loss, neurological issues, personality changes, learning how to rewalk, asking, I guess, can you talk about some of that when it comes to brain-related injuries or, I guess, surgery to help in cases of brain, maybe a brain tumor, like what we mentioned earlier, maybe? Uh, yeah, so it depends on the location. If it is, if if you have a tumor in the location where um, you have, um, you know, motor function or the part of the brain that affects your ability to walk or or use your hand, um, recovery can be challenging. But it's doable, I think, with extensive rehab. I tell patients that it can take up to a year, but with significant rehabilitation, people can get better. Um, now, is that true for? Most of the time, no, but I think with effort and, and uh, you know, aggressive rehabilitation, there's always a chance people can recover some of those functions. Again, our guest today with St. Thomas Rutherford, Dr. Eli, and another question here it has to do with Parkinson's disease. It says, is there a relationship between Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's? Um... Uh, not really. Uh, I, I could be wrong, and I don't want to give you answers that I'm not sure about. I, as far as I know, there isn't. Um, there is always a, a population of patients that have both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Um, so maybe not. And this next question looks like it's from the same person. It says, we're seeing a frightening increase in dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Why do you think we're seeing so many new cases? Uh, people are living longer, I believe. That's people are living longer, and I think uh, 
patients who have, you know, late onset dementia or Alzheimer's are becoming more prevalent because our life expectancy has increased. It makes total sense. Another question here from somebody else that says, uh, is spinal stenosis hereditary? And if it is, are there exercises or diets that would help reduce your chances of getting it? Hmm. I, I do see spinal stenosis in running in families. Um, uh, it's not very common, but it can. And I think, um, yes, there's always something you can do to prevent it from happening. One of the most basic things you could do is strengthening your core and uh, strengthening your back muscles. And is there an age that, uh, you know, people are usually first diagnosed with spinal stenosis? When does it give you problems in the beginning? Um, people, uh, disc herniations run in families, and, and if you have a disc herniation that causes spinal stenosis, you can see it at any age, um, as early as in your, you know, late 20s, early 30s, to any time, you know, in the late, uh, later part of uh, someone's uh, life. Spinal stenosis that is related to arthritis and, um, and degenerative disc disease, that can happen uh, when people reach their, you know, late 40s, uh, 50s, and 60s. So you can get a lot younger, I'm, you know, than people imagine, I bet. Because, you know, usually when you think of back issues, you think about those who are, you know, 40, 50 plus. Yeah, but we, we do see patients who are in their, you know, late 20s and early 30s as well. Again, Dr. Elias Eli with us this morning, who specializes in spinal cord, head injuries, and neurosurgery, all those things with St. Thomas Rutherford, and you do a lot of surgeries. How many do you think you do each week? I mean, is there a number, an average? Um, it, can, um, it can range some weeks. Uh, my average usually about five to six, um, but there are weeks where we do um, eight to ten surgeries, and there are weeks where I do one to two. Wow. Man, eight to ten in a week, that would be, that'd be rough. <laughs> Yeah, those are rough, rough weeks. So when somebody comes to the hospital, let's say for a head injury, they go to the emergency room, what is the typical, I guess, routine that occurs? I mean, are they calling you in at 2 a.m. to say, look, we have this patient in here, a head injury, we need help immediately? I mean, how, how does that play out? Uh, so they do first come to the emergency department. If they do, then they most often get a scan of their head, a CT head. If there is any blood in the brain, I get called, uh, whether it's 2 a.m. or, you know, 2 p.m. Um, and then depending on the kind of blood that they have, we either admit them to the ICU or we admit them to the floor and kind of go from there. Uh, but if there is no bleeding in the brain or any sort of neurosurgical findings, they usually don't call. So is there a group or a team of doctors who do this neurosurgery and maybe you're on one day, you're off the next day as far as being called in late hours? Yeah, you know, we have uh, here at Rutherford, we have four neurosurgeons. It's, it's me. Uh, there, my, I, have a, I have three other partners. Uh, Shrazadi is one of them. Uh, George Lynn and Mike Moran are also here. They've been here a very long time. A lot of people in the community know them very well. So obviously you guys can't go out of town at the same time. <laughs> no. My partner, one of my partners is on vacation this week. I was on vacation last week, so we do have to, um, uh, you know, coordinate things. Uh, but I do take call about a week at a time, so they can call me anytime during that whole week. With the growth that we're seeing here in Rutherford County, is there going to be a need for quite a few more doctors who specialize in the brain, spinal cord as well? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think as, as as the next couple of years come by and as more patient, more people are moving to Rutherford County, we are anticipating a growth in uh, in our we're anticipating a growth in our practice. So we're hopefully we'll be having more neurosurgeons here, um, and we'll be able to do even more specialized cases as time goes by. All right, and most of the surgeries that are done uh, regarding brain surgery or or back surgery even. Are they done typically there at the hospital? Yes, yes. So we, we do uh, any kind of craniotomy and any kind of spine surgery here in the hospital right now. And again, and, and we, we have the resources and we have the ICU capabilities and all the post-operative management here. And, you know, I, I'm curious. I, I know uh, you work on patients who are, I guess, typically over the age of 16, probably older than that. But what age? Because we, we've heard so many different reports what age does the brain typically stop developing or, uh, you know, discontinue that pattern of growth? Is there an age for that? Um, uh, you know, I've heard numbers from 18 all the way to the age of 25. And so it's, it's I guess there's so much to be learned about the yeah. brain still. I mean, it's just a huge category of unknown right now still. Yeah, you know, some people consider that to be the last uh, frontier in, in healthcare is, you know, the brain. Well, I mean, it, it, it does so much. I mean, when you think about it, I mean, it, it covers, I guess, every portion of your body is tied to the brain in some way or some form. Exactly, yeah. It, it's got to be an interesting field to be in. It is, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I went into to this field is because, you know, one, there is still so much to be uh, learned and discovered, and there's so much more treatment options that we still yet, uh, you know, there's so much diseases that we haven't fully treated yet, and I think as time goes by, um, you know, I think there'll be more therapeutic options. So it's, it's nice, it's, it's very nice to be part of a field that grows and so that you grow with it. I'm going to try to fit in this last two. Well, I'll try to get to both questions. We only have a couple of minutes left. But this next question, it says, I hit the side of my head pretty hard twice last year. Uh, first time, had a CT scan, looked good. Second time, have not had a CT scan. But now it feels like my head is hot inside, although I don't have a fever. What should I do and what would be causing this hot feeling in my head? Um, you know, that's a very, that's a vague symptom. And, you know, for someone to have this feeling, you know, a year from when they hit their head is also um, um, not normal, even though there should, there could be something going on inside. I would just say the easiest first thing to do is just to see your primary care doc and have them at least take a look. If they note, if they note any bumps or, or, or you know, or, or changes outside, um, or if they have other symptoms, they can always get a scan of their head just to look. If that looks fine, then I would just keep an eye on it. Are there a wide number of things that could cause that heated head feeling? I mean, from stress to depression, I mean, what, what types of things could cause your head to actually feel hot, but not the rest of your body? Um, you know, I haven't heard that before, that, that feelingness of, you know, having that, of your head feeling hot, unless you're having a fever. Um, so it, you know, it could be a fever, but it's been a year. So uh, stress could be one of them. Anxiety could be one of them. Um, it's, it's very vague. Here's the last question of the day. What are some of the biggest changes that you foresee in the near future for brain surgery? Uh, you know, a lot of the other fields of surgery are moving towards minimally invasive surgery. 
So I think as time goes by, uh, we will be utilizing more minimal invasive approaches to the brain so that people can recover faster. Uh, there's something called keyhole surgeries where you can perform surgery through a small, smaller craniotomy. The other part that we think uh, you know, will help us in the field later on is when people can come up, when, when scientists come up with better treatment for brain tumors so that people don't get craniotomies. And if we can treat brain tumors through uh, better immunotherapy or chemo radiation, uh, patients can live longer and avoid surgery. So I think the future of uh, craniotomies and, and brain surgery involves uh, minimally invasive uh, approaches or no surgery at all. Again, our guest today, Dr. Elias Eli, and part of Ascision St. Thomas Rutherford, focusing on neurosurgery and spinal cord injuries. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I appreciate it. Time right now, 8.57. That's going to do it for this morning's program. We'll put this in podcast form on our website in just a few minutes. You're listening to WGNS. Time right now, again, 8.58. We do have local news and CBS News coming your way next, plus a check on that forecast. We'll see a few scattered showers and thunderstorms possible late this afternoon. A blend of clouds and sunshine develops high in the mid-90s. Tonight, chance for rain and storms low of 71. I'm meteorologist Jennifer Vujitsky on News Radio WGNS. Currently, it's 73.